Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. What a young man. Free to a good home? All right, well, yours is a good home. You should keep them. All right, well, today we are in uh, the book of Acts, chapter 17. And uh, yeah, to start off, while I was prepping this, I uh, was reminded of, uh, I've maybe mentioned this once or twice, this Arabian horse ranch that I worked on when I was younger. And uh, Bernie was the, the owner. He was about 50 years older than I am. And then uh, his daughter Joy was the other uh, owner. And uh, Bernie just died a couple weeks ago. And as I was thinking about him and this text, I, I remembered what he was in my life. Like he was probably the first real man who took time to disciple me, to spend time with me. And even though he was my employer... Uh, really invested in me. He knew I was green. All I had done prior to this was play baseball and play video games. And now I, my senior year of high school, decided I was going to be a farmhand. And though it took a while, as we got accustomed with one another, uh, over time, he started investing more and investing more. And there'd be many times right after lunch, we'd jump right back in the backhoe. We'd be flying through the woods on the way to whatever we were doing, cutting wood or whatever he wanted to do that day, and he would just stop the backhoe, he'd turn it off, and he didn't say, hey, clock out real quick. He just said, you know, I was thinking about something you said like last week, and it just kept me up at night, and I, uh, this is what I thought the Lord was telling me about that, and I just wanted to share it with you. And all the while, I was making my $5.50 an hour. And so, but he was the first person really, maybe besides my dad and mom when I was younger, that really paid attention to me, who grabbed my attention in a way that when he talked, I listened. Like with kindness, he would speak to me. With encouragement, he would talk to me. He would actually come back another two weeks later and say, remember when you said this? And it was like, absolutely true, I said that. And it was so striking to me as I've been remembering him over the last couple of weeks. And I think that our text today really amplifies that kind of thing as we think about Jesus as our Lord and our King. Like, how do we look at Jesus in our life? How do we respond to Him in our life? How do we sit and listen to Him? And why do we do it the way that we do is what I was uh, led to prepping this passage so let's read. It's uh, chapter 17. We're in verses 1 through 15, and we'll read the whole thing and then uh, pray and slowly work through it. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to raise from the dead and saying, this Jesus who I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. 
But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed and when they, heard these th- uh, when they heard these things and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him, As soon as possible, they departed. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you uh, for this morning that you uh, have brought us here. That you work in our lives in ways that we cannot understand. That you bring us through things that are difficult in order to show us who you truly are. You show us that through your son, Jesus, and Lord, we thank you for the work that you have done on the cross for our sins. Help us see you in a new, fresh way this morning. Show us clearly from your scriptures who you are and how we should worship you and think of you. And Holy Spirit, guide us this morning and keep my words uh, for what you have for us today. Move in our souls. Keep the busy week at the door and help us uh, worship you this morning. I pray that in your son's name. Amen. So as a recap, last week we covered the entirety of uh, Acts chapter 16, and quite a bit happened in that chapter. We saw Paul and Silas, they find Timothy, the man reportedly mentioned in the New Testament, and they, uh, they circumcise him and bring him along. And then we saw our author, Luke, join in with the three on their travels and then head northwest on their way to Philippi where we saw Lydia and her family. Is that me? Don't know? All right. If, I'll just take it off if it keeps going. Where we saw Lydia and her family, they were saved and baptized. We saw the jailer and his family saved. We saw the demon-possessed woman who was fortune-telling, most likely saved as well. That's where we saw Paul and Silas thrown into a prison then where an uh, earthquake of the Lord came and swung open the doors and he took the shackles and loosened them. And we were, If you remember, we saw how we should remove the offensiveness of ourselves so that the gospel may move clearly forward. Then we talked about Christian contentment and where that comes from. Chapter 16 ended by... Paul leaving Philippi and heading southwest. They passed through the cities, Amphipolis and Apollonia. 
before arriving at Thessalonica, where Luke continues his narrative today. It's where after, uh, chapter 17, let's read 1 through 4, our first section again. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus who I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So what we see from this first section this morning is Paul and the crew, they pass through a couple cities heading southwest and get to Thessalonica. Thessalonica became a city of refuge for the Jews. If you remember last week, had been expelled from Rome and now are being pushed back towards Israel. And there became a large population of Jews here, which resulted in the building of a synagogue where Paul visits multiple times, possibly over a couple, two to three weeks. He shows them while the Messiah was not coming back to return the physical land to its former glory under David and Solomon, but rather how he had already come, he died and then rose again. Maybe we should pause and consider what this term Messiah means and why Jesus is being referred to him as the Messiah. Messiah, that's an Old Testament term. It's an, a, a Hebrew term, and the equivalent in Greek is Christos or Christ. Have you ever wondered that before? Is, is Christ the last name of Jesus, or is it a title like Dr. Jesus, but rather Jesus the Messiah? That title carries something. It's a weight that is offensive to the Jews here and tied directly into why Paul circumcised Timothy last week, that the gospel is already offensive enough as it is. We don't need to pile onto that. And we see that offense unfold right here in this passage today. If Messiah means anointed one, which it does, anointed for what? What is he going to be anointed for? The Old Testament, that is what would happen with the kings, King David and uh, Saul before him and Solomon after him. He was anointed. These men were anointed to reign over God's people, and that is precisely what the Messiah would be for us. Paul here is preaching that Jesus is the long-awaited, anointed man-king who would save his people Though according to Paul's Jewish contemporaries, there's no way that Jesus was the Christ, actually, because if he was, in their idea of the Messiah, they would no longer be under the Roman rule. The promised Messiah was proclaimed from what we call the Old Testament today, that this Messiah or Christ in Greek would suffer, die, and then be raised from the dead. Though this is not what those contemporary Jews were looking for. Their expectation was to kick the Romans out of, from Israel and to create, once again, an independent state to become king and the military leader and rule over just as they saw under David and Solomon. But Paul argues against this. He brings the Jews to the Bible. And there's one such passage that Paul most definitely would have taken them to. 
And this is a note that you can take or, or commit to memory as you share the gospel with others, that Paul would have taken them to Isaiah 53 to show the modern Jews, his contemporary Jews, what the Messiah was going to do and what he did. So maybe we should read that together and understand just what uh, that says and what the Messiah was coming to do. So that's Isaiah 53, 1 through 12. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people." And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied." By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercessions for the transgressors. What Isaiah shows us in this chapter is that the Messiah would come. But Paul goes on to say that he would be the new king, this Messiah. But the new king is not coming to physically take over the world. He's, not coming, he, he's coming to be led to the slaughter and to take on himself the transgressions or the sins of the people. This is precisely what Jesus did. Well, why is that good news for people today? Because it's certainly uh, required of the law of God that we be perfect. We have to be perfect our entire lives to be saved from eternal punishment. And for millennia, the world was absolutely hopeless. Even the people of God who uh, held the hope of the coming Messiah, this Christ, who would rescue them, were held under the curse of constant reminder that they're not good enough. Because of that inner disease of our sin nature, we needed someone outside of us to be perfect sacrifice. 
that we could not be ourselves. And Jesus did this by becoming our substitute on the cross. It's been uh, come to know, be known as a substitutionary atonement, that Jesus, after living a perfect life, which the law required as a human, which only God could fulfill, then died the death as a perfect sacrifice, which only a human could fulfill, and he did this to become our substitution so that the entirety of the church may be redeemed and purchased back by him. This is why the Messiah, Jesus, was required to die on the cross for his people. That is why it is an essential piece of the gospel message and a truth that Christians must confess and believe that it is only through Jesus Christ that we are saved, not through ourselves or anyone else. This is why we preach and confess and call Jesus, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the promised one. It is his rightful title as our promised Messiah, the anointed one that would crush the head of the serpent and rescues people from their sins and pull us out of the dominion of darkness and place us in dominion with our Father. That's what he was anointed for. He was anointed to take back, he wasn't, I should say, wasn't anointed to take back pieces of dirt and then give that dirt to the Jews, which they were expecting. He was anointed to bear our punishment that we had earned. He took that wrath upon the cross so that we could then be adopted siblings in Christ's kingdom. That is what roused these Thessalonian Jews to anger. And as we think of the gospel, right, through Jesus Christ, uh, our Messiah, I think we need to understand accurately what sin is, as sin that is uh, ever through us and controlling us and pulling us in directions that, as we see, almost like the garbage heap of difficulty and hardships and sin pile up over our lives that we are then led into sin uh, into shame, into embarrassment, into anxieties about what is going to happen, where through Jesus, all of that is absolutely cleaned away. It's, it's written as white as snow, that you will be made, that only through Jesus, because he bore that iniquity or that transgression or that sin upon himself on the cross, it is only through Jesus that we are saved and are healed. That is our Messiah. Leads us to our second section, verses 5 through 9. Let's re read that together. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they then let them go. So in this passage, we see how the... Uh, 
probably the majority of the Jews in Thessalonica became je jealous to the point of stirring up the city that probably had around 200,000 people in it at the time into this mob, into an uproar. And they went searching for Paul and Silas, and though they couldn't find him, they knew probably where he was staying at Jason's house, most likely a convert recently who had a large enough house that the early church could meet there as they did before they began to purchase meeting buildings there in the second century like we have today. Because this mob could not find them, they go to Jason, they drag him out and the other believers who are there, and they proclaim before the authorities that they're being anti-Roman, saying that this Jesus is only the king. That's, of course, absolutely illegal. The only other thing that would be more offensive in the Roman culture is that Jesus only is God, not all the others. They were unsure what to do, and apparently it's not, uh, there's not enough evidence to keep these men overnight, as we saw what happened with Paul and Silas in the jail. They take money to satisfy the mob, probably, and they let them go. But what's interesting here is how that mob and the Jews before the authorities to keep them and to bring them before them claim that they're saying that Jesus is king, which, of course, is completely true. This news should have set the Romans and the Thessalonian Jews, though not because Jesus would be this earthly king to rise up and threaten the reign of Caesar. It should offend the people because Jesus has ascended as the king of the entire universe. But what does Jesus' kingly role mean for the Christian today? In the Old Testament, the king ruled over the people as God's representative he ruled, ruled over God's people or was supposed to rule over God's people as though God himself was ruling physically before them. Though Jesus is king now. This is part of the gospel that Paul and the crew are sharing in the synagogues. But what does that mean? Joel Beakey writes this about Jesus our king. In the execution of his kingly office, Christ exercises universal power over all creation. But he does so for the purpose of giving eternal life to God's elect. And that's John 17, 2. Christ's spiritual kingship is covenantal, for he is the royal administrator of the covenant of grace, this thing that cannot be broken because he is the administrator. In the new covenant, the promises of the covenant of grace come to their clearest and highest expression that God will overcome the covenant breaking of his people by writing his law on their hearts, causing them all to know him and forgiving their sins. Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. He purchased these graces by his priestly sacrifice on the cross and obtains them by his intercession as our priest. Christ administers these covenantal graces as our King. The Son of Man has the authority to grant divine forgiveness and does so as the prince at God's right hand. The King writes his laws not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. John Flavel wrote, Jesus rules not by compulsion, 
but most sweetly. His law is a law of love written upon our hearts, for he delights in free, not enforced obedience. He rules children, not slaves, and so his kingly power is mixed with fatherly love. His yoke is not made of iron, but gold. Jesus is the wonderful king. Everything in our lives is owed to him. Our family, our job, our kids, our entirety of our lives should be lived to glorify the king who has died to rescue us. The king who is required for the Messiah came to live perfectly and be murdered on the cross to achieve that salvation. Well, what do we do with that? Those of us who don't live under a monarchy, though maybe some of us would prefer it. If you remember the way that I was completely enamored with uh, Bernie, my boss, with the tutoring and discipleship, the, the way that I would just sit and listen and be directed, and I have wanted nothing to do with that from anybody. I was running away from all authority. Bernie was just a mere man, just as we all are. He was immortal with a date written in time where he would no longer be with us, yet I would just sit and listen and take his words to heart and let that change the direction of my life and the way that I would process the things around me. But if Jesus is our eternal and heavenly king, how much more should we sit under his feet? How much more should the believer run to their king in every situation to be comforted? In all crises of life, how should we throw open the doors of the throne room as his children and tell our king of our needs and our pains? How we would be comforted if we would go with our troubles to the king and do such a thing. Because that divine king controls everything. Jesus told this as well, this idea which was worked out in uh, great uh, detail in the book Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. I think that could be a must-read by every Christian today to see that heart of Jesus. This is what the great and glorious king of the universe declared to his church in Matthew eleven twenty-five. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone who, whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And Jesus says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Well, that's certainly all of us. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, not your achy feet or the arthritis in your hands. For your souls you will find rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden and light. And this is our king. From the very top, 
the one who told us to come to him, the one who teaches, the one who is gentle and approachable in his heart. Like that's the inner, that's the way he's saying, like this is the inner me, that all the things that come out of me are in my heart and I am gentle and approachable. The true and eternal king, in him we find rest and comfort for our souls. The quietness and calmness and peace for our souls. That is Jesus, our King. Well, let's go to our uh, third section, verses 10 through 15. We'll read, read uh, through that, 17.10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then, when, uh, then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come, with, come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So here we see Paul and Silas doing exactly like they did in Thessalonica though being sent away under the cover of darkness to Berea, this town continuing to be in the southwest as they move around the Aegean Sea on the second journey. Berea also have enough Jews in it to have a synagogue, and this is where Paul and Silas, of course, had to preach the gospel. Though we see a different reaction between the Jews of Berea and the Jews of Thessalonica, the Thessalonians reacted strong against the gospel message, but the Bereans pulled out their Bibles, their Hebrew Bible, what we would call the Old Testament, and began to read closely about what Paul was talking about. And the news spread all the way back to Thessalonica, which didn't sit well. They probably wanted to drag Paul out and beat him, and they learned that he snuck off in the middle of the night, got to Berea, and they came down after him. They're so stirred up by this gospel. Eventually, Paul then sends, uh, Paul sent off to Athens. Eventually, Silas and Timothy as well, and that's where we will find him next week. What remarkable people these Bereans were. We see a, a direct dichotomy between the Bereans and the Thessalonians. Paul and the crew walked in and started teaching something that had never been heard before that the Messiah and King Jesus had come and he died just as it was foretold in the Bible and then the Bereans didn't balk. Right? They didn't puff themselves up and get defensive because this is new and we can't accept something new. They didn't puff themselves up. They listened quietly. They opened up their Bibles and they found where Paul was teaching and they listened. Luke writes that because of their Willingness to listen and examine the scriptures that led uh, the scriptures. They led this uh, to their belief in Christ. This shouldn't surprise anyone. We know the of the gospel obsessiveness of these people. We know the power of the gospel to change lives. 
But what I think we should ask is why the Bereans opened up their Bible. Why did they run there? What is it about what we call the Old Testament, which they can't, uh, which they've seen to tethered themselves to, that caused them to believe upon Christ? And I think the combination of these passages is just perfect. We see how Jesus is the Messiah. We see that how that Messiah is king and that we see that the king gave us his word. He didn't leave us in the void to wander around wondering. He gave it to us to learn how he would rule his church and love his people. The Bible is no ordinary document. It's the revelation of God himself. The, the words contained in the Bible are perfect and true and exactly what God wanted to communicate to us through the history of his world. It is the words that God gave us to uh, be guided and to rule over our lives so that we would know how we should live and glorify him and what's expected of us as we walk through these this Christian life. This theology, which uh, you'll hear more about in the next couple of weeks, is what led the reformers to coin the term sola scriptura, or scripture alone. In writing at the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, the, the birth of Protestantism, or the rebirth of it, more accurately said, Matthew Barrett wrote this, sola scriptura means that only scriptures, because it's God's inspired word, is our inerrant, so perfect in everything that it says, sufficient, it holds everything that we could ever need, and final authority for the church. The Bible is our chief, supreme, and ultimate authority. Not only is the Bible our supreme authority, it is the authority that provides believers with all the truth they need for salvation and for following Christ. The Bible is sufficient for faith and practice, and also that God is its divine author. The ground for biblical authority is divine inspiration, God's active hand in its writing. Though God has spoken in just as beautiful terms about the Bible himself, in 2 Timothy 3, 14, Paul wrote, But as for you, continue, to what, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scriptures breathed out by God, profitable for teaching and reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, and that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The author of Hebrews writes in chapter 4, 12 through 13, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The Bible is the pure word of God, given to his church so that we would be saved and then cared for by the Lord. It is through the Bible he does this. We weren't left uh, to wander aimlessly in blind attempt to find him. That is why the Bereans ran to the scriptures to see what God had told them and what they had missed. This is why Paul went to the synagogues in order to point the Jews to God's promises unto their life in the Bible. 
And all of that made me think of all the things that we do here in this church and why we do them in our worship and practice. I don't know if you've ever wondered that. Why do we do these things? Things at Springbrook, they may be a little odd or strange. You've never seen them before. Maybe there are similarities between things we've done here and where you've gone to church prior. But the driving force behind everything that we do is the Word of God. The Bible is the Lord's perfect, inerrant, infallible Bible so that we may worship Him. It is the Word. And so we worship the Trinity through His Word. Everything we do here is through, by, and around the Bible. If you notice that the pulpit is right here in the middle of the stage, is a symbol of the centrality of the preaching of God's Word in our worship service. Every Sunday, we open up our Bibles, and then we preach through a passage of the Bible, and we preach that passage through the entire book that it is in, and we frame that within the framework of the entire Word of God. The music that is chosen reflectly, uh, uh, directly reflects the truths of Scripture so that we may sing them and glorify the Lord through them. We open our worship service by the reading a call of worship, which is the Bible. We end with a benediction from the Bible. We train our kids in our kids' church to, by teaching them redemptive themes through the major stories of the Bible. We walk our second and sixth graders through a catechism, which is teaching them doctrinal truths of the Bible so that we can understand what the Word teaches in our 7th through 12th grade ministry, we go straight through the uh, books of the Bible. We've gone through Philippians and Galatians are, are now right in the middle of the Gospel of Mark so that they may see how to handle the Word. We have two prayer meetings in the mornings that we throw up a passage of Scripture and we've been working through First and Second Thessalonians. And then we break it down and then we pray through that that the Lord would apply the Bible to our lives right where we are now. We are a church that is trying actively to be centered around God's perfect word because that is how he has called us to worship him. Because Jesus did it first in the synagogues when he went. Paul did it here as we are seeing him as he goes through the cities. And the early church and then the reformers in the 1500s picked back up that tradition. Jesus is our king. He is our Christ, Messiah, who gave himself up for us so that we could be reunited with the Father. And then the Father gave us his perfect word so that we could know him personally and who he is. And through this, he gave us his gospel. And I'm not sure if uh, I know of any other king who died so that people of his own kingdom could be saved. Certainly don't know any presidents who have done so. I have heard of many kings who uh, offed themselves so that they'd be saved from shame of defeat in the battlefield. But none who died the death that you and I had earned so that you could be rescued through faith by grace and then set forevermore in the heavens with our God. That is the King Jesus Christ who we worship. That is why we should worship him with our entire lives. That is why we worship him the way that we do in this church. He is our king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for 
this passage. I'd ask, Holy Spirit, that you would uh, seal your truths in our heart, the things that are useful from today and are true, that, that we would worship you as our King, Jesus, that we would bow before you, that our entire lives would point back to you, that they would reflect who you are and who you've called us to be through the gospel. Jesus, for those who uh, are confused or are not in you this morning, I'd ask that you would open up their hearts, that they would see you afresh, they would understand who you are through the same gospel that Paul preached 2,000 years ago. I thank you for your work in this church, this body, and the individuals who are here. I thank you. And I pray this in your son's name. Amen.